Okay. Galatians 3. Um, this morning and in this section of Galatians chapter 3, uh, Paul takes the opportunity to give context to the gospel. We, we've we seen lots of context. Uh, we've seen lots of witness as we looked at last week. Uh, but uh, he begins this morning with... Um, with this discussion uh, about faith uh, and Abraham. And, and ultimately, uh, the, the topic for this morning is the curse of the law, is, is the hardship uh, endured by that. And so I want to begin today just defining curse. I have to get down here to the right section. I apologize. Um, and, and as we... As we begin that discussion about the curse of the law, don't misunderstand that uh, God did not curse mankind with the law. The law itself is not bad. It's not wrong. Uh, it isn't a mistake. It isn't something that God set man up for failure with. It is good. God has done something and he's established something that is right and proper uh, and and to be, giving, to be given thanks for. Um, but the curse of the law uh, is a result of man's inability uh, to keep it. And that's what we find it's in conflict with the justice of God. And so we experience the just consequence of our failure to keep the law. And I want to just point out that the punishment, right, the end result is not the same as the curse. There are those that would make that statement. However, uh, it, 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 we, we don't see that being the case even from the very excuse me, even from the very beginning, we find that the punishment, the consequence of the law is that eternal death, that separation from God. The soul that sins shall die. God told Adam and Eve there in the Garden of, Geth of, of, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Garden of Eden, he said, uh, when you, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden, the one that I told you not to eat of, you'll die. And that's exactly what happened. And so, uh, as according to Romans chapter 5, death is a result of sin. It is the just consequence of breaking God's command. Now, the curse is something different, however. It's related to that, but when you and I sin, we didn't immediately die. So there is some difference here. The curse of the law uh, is... Well, let's take time. Let, let's, let's look at it. Let's define it. So... Uh, <clears throat> I want to go back and, and define this, and let's build a biblical understanding. Uh, because, and we're going to, in some respects, we're going to oversimplify, because there are about six words in the Hebrew that are translated curse, and each one of them has, has a different nuance. Uh, they, they mean something different. Uh, but the one that we are singling out today is the one that is applicable to our conversation about the curse and the it being related to the law. So, um, it literally means uh, hemmed in or bound, or to be rendered powerless. That's that that's really what it means. And so, the first place that, that we find is in Genesis chapter three. And oftentimes, it's the you know this principle of the first mention of something gives us some insight into it. And in Genesis chapter three. Right after the fall, as God is giving the consequences for having sinned both to the serpent and to Adam and Eve, we find that this is the word that is used. This Hebrew word, arar, um, A-R-A-R, is the transliteration. And that, that is what is being discussed. So he says in verse 14, Genesis chapter 3, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now, ultimately, we find that the serpent becomes this enduring symbol of the humiliation of Satan. Uh, and, and we need to understand that uh, the snake, the serpent that was used as this, this mechanism to engage with Eve, uh, is simply an animal. Uh, yet there is some consequence as a result of that, and 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 it's this ongoing, this enduring symbol of of the humiliation, of the destruction of Satan, because here he is overcome. 
He tempts Adam and Eve. Uh, they partake of the fruit. He sows just a little bit of truth uh, so that the deception is palatable. And in the end, uh, as they sin, we find that there is this uh, consequence that comes upon them. But the consequence is ultimately related to the solution that God foretells uh, in, in verse 15 about the this coming Redeemer. So Satan is humiliated. He's lost the battle, though he feels as if he's won. This is no surprise to God, as we've talked about before, that, that he knew before he created anything, that this is going to be what happened. That there would need to be a Savior. There would need to be a Redeemer. Somebody that would come and stand in the place of those sinful human beings. And so here it is. Uh, Satan is ultimately lost. And it is foretold by God himself that he is going to be destroyed. And so we have this symbolic humiliation. In Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah 65 Verse 25. Almost there. Isaiah 65, verse 25. Hold your place there in Genesis 3, if you haven't already lost it. It says, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion uh, shall eat straw like the bullock, and and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, saith the Lord. So we have this description uh, in Isaiah of this uh, millennial reign of Christ, this, this kind of uh, temporary uh, unification of creation. Right? It isn't remade, it isn't the new heavens and the new earth, but there is some uh, looking forward to and some fulfillment in, a, in in an immediate sense of of the peace and the original creation that God had established, and and that's represented here by these predators and these prey animals being together. But I want you to notice that the same that the serpent is still here, cursed. That he is powerless to have done anything about this, that that symbol of the humiliation of Satan remains in place until ultimately he is completely and utterly defeated. So there is this enduring example. Now, it's non-negotiable, and and this this serpent is powerless to change it. Most uh If we go back to Genesis chapter 3 and we look at verse 17, which is probably a little bit better example, it gives us a little bit better understanding because it's personal. It's something that we can wrap our head around uh, because we experience it. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, we have God giving the consequences uh, and using this, this Hebrew word, arar, this, this cursing. And he said unto Adam, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and is eaten of the tree, uh, which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt eat of it, thou shalt not eat of it, excuse me, cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat it in all the days of thy life. So, ultimately, what we find is that this uh, this ground that God had designed and initially made to be fertile and to bring forth that which was needed and required to sustain the life that God had commanded Adam and Eve to propagate upon the earth is going to withhold its fertility, that the, that the the original intent is subjected to something so that there may be a palatable, a, fee, a felt consequence in immediacy, a reminder of the sinful nature and man's inability. The ground is cursed, and thus the fertility, the original creation, is bound or ban banned from man. The earth is cursed and told and no longer is it bringing forth things. And as we progress here, we see that it's going to bring forth those things that are contrary to and, and complicate this agricultural endeavor. So this idea of curse, this uh, being hemmed in, this, this being rendered powerless, this reminder and this enduring uh, example 
of our inability. So we talk about the curse of the law. It's not the consequence. It isn't the penalty. It isn't that death that we're talking about. It's the reminder and it is the being, uh, and this becomes clearer as we progress, it's this reminder that we cannot, which factors into, and we'll get to this next week, the purpose of the law. What is it all about? Uh, there's really three main categories uh, that God uses this curse term in. Number one, the declaration of punishment. And we looked at two examples there in Genesis chapter 3, where God declares this is the punishment. This is the immediate, uh, tangible ramification of what you just did. Now, ultimately, the result of that fall uh, of the entrance of sin God and their rejection of God as a result is eternal separation, is death, spiritual death. But in its immediacy, there is some tangible things that we point to and we say this is a reminder of the consequence that we have. That God and His creation has built some witness into the system, so to speak, to remind us of who He is, what He's done for us, and ultimately, that his plan and purpose is to redeem mankind. And we see that revealed throughout creation, that the heavens declare his glory. And the firmament is handiwork. We see that God reminds us of his existence and what his purpose for you and I was in the very beginning in what he's created. And we have, at the same time, these reminders of our failure, of our inability, of the punishment that stands before us, separated from him, absent of faith in Jesus Christ. So the declaration of punishment, we find this term used in that. Secondly, we find it used in the utterance of threats. In Jeremiah chapter 11, God is telling uh, the people through the prophet Jeremiah that, hey, I'm going to send this country, sort of his MO with the nation of Israel, and they're going to be my hand of of judgment upon you, and that's sort of the, the, the rough context. But he says in verse 3, And say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeys not the words of this covenant. In other words, there is a threat made, there is a, a declaration that there is a consequence for not having kept the words of this covenant. We're going to talk about that as we progress this morning to, to some degree, because it becomes part of the history and the example of the nation of Israel. In Malachi chapter uh, 1, Malachi chapter 1, verse 14, says, But cursed be the deceiver which has in his flock a male, and vows and sacrifices unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. So here it is. You, you bring your offering before the Lord, and it isn't the prescribed offering. It's some, something less than what is prescribed, something less than what you should have brought. And by way of deceit, you intend to bring this other animal, and God says, listen, you're not fooling anyone. Your neighbors may not know. They may not see it, but I want you to realize, and this is a key point of understanding for us, that this is an affront to God. This is something that we are trying to deceive him, and there is no deception pulled on God himself. And then there's the proclamation of the law, and we're going to save that for ourselves because that's where we're going this morning. That's what we're looking at this morning, that this there is this proclamation of the law, and wherever God has the law proclaimed amongst his people, there is a warning regarding that. There is a a declaration of punishment, there is an utterance of threats, those things accompany the proclamation of the law. If you do this, this is what happens. Now in the New Testament, <clears throat> uh, oh, not to the New Testament yet, but each one of those categories are a reflex of somebody who is violating his relationship with God. And ultimately, this passage in Malachi becomes a good example of that. That we are not, uh, that what is at issue is our hurt or our defamation or our rejection by action and in word or, or one or the other of God himself. 
Each one of those things that God has, has explained in those examples are a moral or an ethical standard that God has established. And as a result of that, we find that they, they are an attack upon him and his standard. So in, in Deuteronomy chapter 27, if you'll turn there with me for a moment, and you may hold your place here because we're going to come back to Deuteronomy 27 a little bit later, but Deuteronomy chapter 27, a few examples, and we can we'll recognize many of these uh, laws. These are things that uh, we should have read about and understood through the book of uh, uh, Leviticus leading up to Deut Deuteronomy, even uh, some in, in the book of Numbers, but uh, as well as the book of Exodus, here is God laying out his law. This is how I want my people to conduct themselves. This is how you represent me. This is how we maintain relationship, as it were. Now, all of that being an illustration for you and I, that inadequacy of the law in itself because of the weakness of mankind, and that's sort of the purpose of the law, and we're going to get to that more next week. But in Deuteronomy chapter 27, a few examples, we could look at many examples, but let's look at verse 15 for just a moment. It says, Cursed be the man that makes any graven or molten image, an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and puts it in a secret place, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. So what's going on here is that God has told the, Israel, the, the nation of Israel, they come into the promised land, and this is, this is the retelling. That's what Deuteronomy means, the retelling of the law. So here is this generation they execute this covenant in exodus chapter 19 uh with god he gives them the ten commandments in exodus chapter 20 and they immediately begin to break them and as a result of their rejection of god and all of those things he says listen this generation is going to have to pass away and that's why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years all the people that needed to passed away and ultimately deuteronomy is a restatement of the law before moses passes and before the torch is handed to Joshua, before they enter the promised land, and, 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 and here and toward the end of the book, this conclusion, we are in the promised land, and God tells them, listen, half of you go over here on this mountain, Mount Ebal, and half of you go on this mountain, and I apologize, I can't remember what mountain that was, but there's this valley in between, and there was this leading in these blessings and these curses. And one of them would say, that they would, on this side of the mountain, they would Proclaim the cursing, and the people would say, Amen. So be it. Let's, we, we concur. There's this continuation of the same covenant that was executed with Moses and the people there in Exodus 19. That if you keep my covenants, you keep my commandments, and I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. And all throughout, we have this picture being painted from God's institution of that covenant with those people forward of man's inability. We're going to talk about that next week. In Deuteronomy uh, 27, verses 18 through 19, Cursed be he that makes the blind to wander out of the way, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that perverts the judgment of the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Over and over throughout this chapter, we find this description. Here are the things that you are not supposed to do. They are an affront to God. They are an attack upon his moral standard and ethical standard. And as we reject that, as we participate in that, we are cursed. We are bound. We are reminded of the inability of man to redeem himself by any obedience to the law. We find that we are rendered powerless to do anything about it, and that we are subject to this curse, this ultimate, not the, not the ultimate consequence, not the penalty, that is part of what is there. We, we are going to die because we're sinners. And apart from Jesus Christ, there will be a spiritual death accompanying that physical death. Now, in the New Testament, in our text this morning, in Galatians chapter 3, uh, we have the word katara, which is derived from the Hebrew, and it means condemned or doomed. In other words, it is an inescapable result. It's an inescapable result. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, 
This is the this is the term that we find there. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He has redeemed us from the inescapable result. It means that you and I are condemned. We are doomed. In other words, the result of our inability is inescapable. The, the result of our unrighteousness is inescapable. And the Bible labels that clearly so as a curse. Not that the law in its, uh, of itself is, is wrong or bad, but we are powerless to overcome it. And ultimately that is the curse of the law. And why? Well, because the question, let's begin in verse 10 of Galatians chapter 3. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And we're not going to get to every one of them this morning, but I want you to understand that in this section that we're looking at this morning, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, in particular the book of Deuteronomy, in nearly every verse. This is not new. And as we look at the purpose of the Old Testament, that this is written for our example, for our understanding, that this is written to illustrate the truths of God to us, it's exactly what's happening here. So as many are as of the works of the law. In other words, remember that here is Paul, O foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who has deceived you so that you might follow after some other gospel, which isn't another gospel at all. As many as are under the works of the law, as many as are trying to establish their righteousness by their obedience to the law, are under the curse. You are under the curse of the law because of our inability. Not because that it is wrong, not because God has done anything uh, that would set us up for failure, but because of our inability. So turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to, an, to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of... That's chapter 1. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he is whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So here's the thing. If, if Abraham or any other person could have earned their salvation, then salvation would have been of some other means. And it would have been reckoned to us because that is what we rightly deserve. That is what we earn. The wages of sin is death. The wages of righteousness are eternal life. The problem is our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our righteousness is not righteousness. So we are bound to it all. If we're going to try to establish our righteousness by any work of the law, then we are bound to all of the law. We have to do every single point, every jot and tittle, every little thing, both in, in letter and in spirit. We have to do it all. And we have to do it perfectly. We have to do it in a perfect consistency with God's intent. Not my interpretation. In verse 12 of Galatians chapter 3, it says, And the law is not of faith. The man that does them shall live in them. If I'm going to try to be righteous as a result, and here he is reminding the Galatians that, hey, we have this law, we have this curse, this reminder that we are unable and if we're going to try to live in them, then we have to live all of them. And that's how we establish our life. The problem is, is we all know that we can't. In James chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us that if we offend in one point, then we're guilty of all of it. James 2, 10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Right? If we, if we are going to bind our righteousness to this, obedience to the law, then we are bound to every single point of it. 
every single instance, every single uh, minutia, intent, motivation, everything that we do has to be perfectly consistent with that. And it isn't that it is even possible for us. That's not the point that Paul is making. What he is saying is that this is the curse of the law. That for us, because we are unable, we are stuck in it. And so apart from Jesus Christ, which we're going to get to here in a moment, apart from Jesus Christ, we are here. We are bound to it. We are slaves, as it were, to the circumstance that we've been born into. That we have to keep every jot and tittle of the law. That we have to obey every nuance. And that every motivation has to be pure and consistent with what God would intend with every law that he's given. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Cursed be he that confirms not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is every person bound and 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 unable and reminded of their failure if we can't keep every point of that. In Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 21. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. God uses the law. He has an intent and a purpose for it, and we're going to get to that next week, but we need to understand what this curse is. That here we are, and the curse of the law ultimately isn't the penalty of the law. The consequence is death. Spiritual and physical. But what we experience immediately, this curse of the law, is that we are bound to obey every single point of it. That we are stuck in this servitude, this slavery, as it were, to these laws and, and regulations and intents and motives, all of those things. And we have this ongoing reminder of our inability. The change of our circumstances such that we find ourselves at odds. So the question is, from verse 10, where is our faith? What are we trusting in? Which Paul has asked many times of the Galatians, where is your faith? What are you trusting in? Yourself, your ability, or are you trusting in something else? He says in verse 11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. It is evident, it is plainly true, and we know that because God himself has told us this is what it takes to be justified. Not only did he record it in the example of Abraham, but he gave us his word stating it explicitly. This verse is quoted from Habakkuk 2.4. And what does it say? That those, the just, those who God justifies, live by faith. They're looking at something outside of themselves. They're looking at something outside of their ability or their obligation to keep the law perfectly. They're looking completely and wholly upon the promise of redemption that God has established through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through Him alone. Jesus would say in John, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 36, John 3.36, as he concludes this, this little vignette with, with Nicodemus, who comes in the night and asks him, what do we have to do to be saved? And he didn't ask him that. That was, I, I'm inferring an intent there. He acknowledges that, hey, you must be from God because nobody can do the things that you do unless he is from God. And Jesus immediately goes to, you must be born again. And he begins to explain what that means. And then he uses some illustrations for you and I to help clarify that understanding. He points to some of these uh, past typologies, uh, whether it's the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. The, the, the sinful nature, yet we have to look with faith to something outside of ourselves to save us, something that God himself provided. 
And, the, and, and ultimately, all of that is pointing to Jesus Christ being that which is going to be lifted up. And he says in John 3.36, He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In other words, you are not justified because you're trusting in something. Your faith is misplaced. You are operating completely and solely upon your ability to maintain that law. And the problem is, the curse of the law is that if you go there, you have to keep all of it. And man is incapable. God has declared us all to be sinners so that he might remain just and the justifier. The wrath of God abides on him yet. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Galatians 2, 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, shall no flesh be justified. We can't, and God has always known that we couldn't. The consequence, the curse of the law, is ultimately our inability, our inconsistency. The fact that we are sinners from the moment of conception And in this flesh, as Paul would say, there is no good thing. That any righteousness that we may have, ultimately, if we get right down to the core of it, is a selfishly motivated righteousness. I'm trying to save my own skin. I'm not trying to serve and honor God. I'm trying to serve and honor, preserve myself. We abide under the curse of the law. That we must keep every single point of it, yet we cannot. The just, God tells us, live by faith. They are justified. They are brought from death to life by their faith in Jesus Christ, not by any work that they may accomplish. He says in verse 13, we read verse 12, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made, being made a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone that hangs on a tree. He quotes again from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21, verses 22 through 23 there. Ultimately, th- th- there's this discussion that if you hang somebody, if somebody is hanged as the consequence, the punishment for their, their crime, you don't leave them until the next day. You you take them down uh, before the conclusion of the day so that the land isn't corrupted. But it clearly states that anyone who is hung is cursed by God. And it says here that Christ has redeemed us. He was made a curse for us. He was made a curse for us. We are removed from the curse of keeping the law perfectly by faith in Jesus Christ. When we talk about the exchange and the atonement that happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus being made sin so that we could be made his righteousness, not only is there an exchange of righteousness, but there is an exchange of debt. That Jesus Christ himself takes on the burden of the cross, our inability who have kept the law perfectly, our unrighteousness, and he himself becomes the object of cursing, the object of God's wrath. So that God is just in punishment of sin. And so that he might freely justify you and I, who by faith would believe in his son. The result for you and I is, as we read in uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. 
two laws at play. One, the law of sin and death. The soul that sin shall die. That is the consequence. That is the, the, the punishment for having been, been a sinner. Death. Both the physical as it entered in by Adam and Eve, but ultimately not just that, the spiritual death that comes upon everyone as a result. And we are delivered from that by faith in Jesus Christ to a different law, the, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. That just as it was true that apart from him, we would die for eternity in him, we live for eternity. We have that spiritual redemption. So, the, so much so that no condemnation, no accusation made against you and I as his children, as his uh, redeemed possession stands. Though we may fail, though we, we are above reproach in that sense. We are perfectly righteous because we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26, Romans 3, 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. In other words, God set forth, He, he made Jesus to be that substitute, that, that sacrifice, propitiation on our behalf. He was the the, the, the spotless lamb that was brought, and when the blood is applied, the angel of death passes over. That's all illustrated in Exodus chapter 12, at Passover. Jesus Christ is sim symbolized by that. He is the propitiation. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sin. That through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and we are made as if we had never sinned. To declare, I say in verse 26, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just. Right? Sin is punished. Sin is dealt with. God didn't turn a blind eye. He executed his wrath upon it fully and completely in Jesus Christ. What you and I should receive when we leave this life was given to Jesus Christ on the cross. The punishment, the wrath of God that would have abided on us had we chosen to try and attain our righteousness through our works was given to Jesus Christ. He was cursed. He experienced the wrath of God in all of its fullness. Yet you and I, by faith in Him, escape that wrath. God remains just. Sin was punished. And he was the justifier of him that believes in Jesus Christ. He was the one himself who was declaring you and I to be righteous, to be sinless, to be without blemish, to be acceptable to come into his very presence. In Hebrews chapter nine, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter nine verse 12, says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but of his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. We have this reference to this figure that existed in the past, this tabernacle, the temple, this shedding of blood being offered on the mercy seat for the redemption, for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. And there's this reference to uh, entering in on a frequent basis where uh, every day on the day, every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer sacrifices for his own sins because he himself is unrighteous. Yet he follows the prescription of God and he goes and he offers sacrifices for his own sins. He makes the offering, the atonement, takes the animal that is prescribed, that is the propitiation, the sacrifice for the sins of the people. And he offers it in, according to all that God has recorded in the Old Testament, according to the method and the procedure that God has laid out. And he takes that blood and he goes into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, and he sprinkles that blood on the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that which would stand before the law, which is in the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, at the very basic level, right? This is it. This is what God has prescribed for you and I. 
And what's be, what stands between the law and God who is perfectly just is mercy. Giving you and I what we do not deserve, what we have not earned, what we don't merit in and of ourselves, but through the shed blood of someone else, Jesus Christ, we come into his presence. And Jesus Christ doesn't do that on a frequent basis, on an annual basis, like the like the sacrifice that was made on behalf of the people. We don't bring sacrifices ourselves when we sin. We trust wholly and completely in the shed blood of Jesus Christ because it says that here he came in not with the blood of goats or calves or any of these animals that are prescribed as a sin offering. But he came in with his own blood. And I want you to understand that this is the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the perfectly righteous Jesus Christ who kept the law, not breaking one jot or one tittle, one little mark. He kept all of it perfectly, not only these literal law, but the spirit of the law. He is the example and the perfect fulfillment of righteousness in that he kept the law perfectly. And as a perfect offering, sinless, spotless, without any blemish, he laid himself on the cross willingly on our behalf. He brought the offering of his own blood so that we might be forgiven. And he did so once because it was a perfect Sacrifice And what did it obtain for you and I, according to Scripture? Eternal redemption for us. The ongoing and the perpetual, the eternal, lasting sacrifice. The lasting forgiveness. Because God's Word does not change. When He declares you and I to be righteous, it remains true for all of eternity. We are redeemed. We stand by faith in Jesus Christ and in that alone, not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in our ability, not trusting in any religion or method, trusting in Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that God made on our behalf. We are redeemed. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. No longer are we obligated to keep it as we talked about. We are delivered from the curse. And what that means for you and I is that when we, as Paul describes of himself in Romans chapter 7, when we fail, when we succumb to sin, when we yield to our fleshy nature, we don't lose the salvation that we have. But we are secure in the declaration of God that is unchanging. That eternal redemption remains. And I think to myself that that is often misunderstood and that that often is a yoke of bondage that happens to people. Christians in particular, it's a clever yoke of bondage. Because all of a sudden you have to do it this way or that way in particular, and we fall into these legalisms, and all of a sudden this becomes a standard of righteousness, which is exactly what's happened to the Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who has deluded us? Who has caused us to follow some other gospel that is, in fact, no gospel at all, but is yet a yoke of bondage? Seeking to earn and merit our favor with God, which we have already obtained, which exists for eternity for us. We are redeemed from the curse of the law. We stand before Him righteous by His own declaration. Now, when the nation of Israel stood there, there was two groups. Half of them went on this mountain, half of them went on this mountain, half declared the cursings and half declared the blessings. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, it says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing. That which is God has intended to be good for us. I heard cursing and blessing described this way this week, uh, that a curse is a negative change of circumstance and a blessing is a positive change of circumstance. And in some respects, there is some truth in that understanding. Adam and Eve had a negative change of circumstance as a result of their sin. And through belief in Jesus Christ, we have a positive change of circumstance. We are blessed. 
The nation of Israel was promised by God in the same way that if they would keep his law, they would be cursed. Excuse me, if they didn't keep his law, they would be cursed. And in the same way, if they would keep it, they would be blessed. Now, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you understand that keeping the law was not high on their agenda. In fact, it was pretty much the example of how not to do it. Because over and over, they would subject themselves to the curse of God through their, through their rejection of him, over and over. But here we have this description that the blessing of Abraham, that which was promised to him, this positive change in circumstance, might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Now, we talked about this as we looked at Peter just a little bit, but in Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses uh, tw- 2 and 3, God promises that all nations through Abraham's seed, through the son of promise, Isaac, not Ishmael, will be blessed. And this is looking forward to, this is a messianic prophecy, looking forward to the ultimate redemptive purpose of God. That everything that he promised to redeem, to make new, uh, just as he did Adam and Eve there in the garden, that the ultimate conquering of the enemy will happen. In verse 8 of Galatians chapter 2, it says in the scripture, the very word of God, foreseeing that God would justify, in other words, recording for you and I, that God would justify the heathen through faith. Not through their obedience to the law, through faith. Preached before the gospel under Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Our proper understanding, according to Scripture, if Scripture interprets Scripture, of God's promise to bless all nations through Abraham is a gospel promise. And all that means to you and I is that we, not being Jewish, or they being Jewish, are saved in the same way that Abraham was saved. His righteousness counted to them as faith. Our, our, their faith counted to them as righteousness, just as our faith is counted to us as righteousness. In Luke chapter 2, we have a, con- a com- confirmation of this promise at Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 2. As the angels proclaim this uh, coming of this incarnation of God, uh, G- Jesus Christ taking on flesh, and proclaim this to the, uh, to the shepherds that are out in the field, they begin in verse 10 of Luke chapter 2. Angel, then the angel said unto them, Fear not. Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Right? This is a promise of blessing. This is something to look forward to. This is a positive change in your circumstance. Why? Because which shall be to all people. It's not limited to, Jeru- to, to those in Jerusalem or Samaria or Judea or those within the confines of the nation of Israel. It is to all people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. There's a promise of redemption. Now, it's not effective unless you accept it. But there is a promise of redemption made in the express desire of God that all people would come to repentance, found in Scripture. This is good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Ultimately, the descent of Abraham takes on flesh. It is born there in the city of David, which was all foretold, prophesied in the Old Testament. Why? Well, according to the book of uh, Philippians or Colossians, and I apologize, I can't remember which one right now, but Jesus took on flesh for the purpose, the express intent of dying on the cross, of being the substitution, of becoming sin, so that we might be made righteousness. Why did he take on flesh? So that he might redeem mankind. And as we talked about last week, he gives the earnest of the Holy Spirit, uh, this down payment, this promise to fulfill all that he has promised. Because we live in this life, we live in a world where we are affected by sin, where we ourselves are engaging and indulging in sin, whether we choose to or, or whether it's an ongoing struggle, but there it is. We live in that world. We feel the effects of it. We are part of the problem oftentimes. Yet God says, I want to assure you of your salvation. I want to make sure that you understand that I will fulfill 
fulfill all that I have promised, that when I say you are justified, that you are righteous, that you are now redeemed, I mean it. And I will fulfill that promise. I've uttered it, I've declared it, and my word does not return void. It will go out and accomplish that which is going to accomplish. And it doesn't change. Though heaven and earth pass away, yet my word remains true, unchanged. It gives us the earnest of the Holy Spirit, this down payment on the promise of all that he's going to give us. We looked at that last week as Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, This only what I learned of you, received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. As good as we may feel about the things that we might do, that is not how we receive the Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, verses 45 through 47, we have this description of Peter. And he witnesses the impartation of the Holy Spirit on these Gentiles. And it's an important thing that that is recorded for you and I because it confirms the promise that God has made to Abraham that all nations, not just the nation of Israel, will be blessed. And not only that, but they will be blessed. And as a result of that, they will become these spiritual children uh, verse 29 of Galatians 3, and if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. They received the Holy Spirit in the same way that those Jewish disciples received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And in fact, it, for them, it manifests in the same way through this, this exercise of the gift of tongues. Now, I don't know if that necessarily means that that has to be how it manifests itself for you and I today. However, it illustrates that important truth that we are, in fact, saved just as Abraham was saved. That the promise of God, that his redemptive purpose still exists, and that it's as valid for you and I outside of the nation of Israel as it is for those in the nation of Israel. It confirms exactly what the Scripture says, that God wrote and recorded and did everything that he did in the past for our benefit, for our understanding, as an example that we might understand his redemptive purpose. It's all well and good. But what does that mean for you and I today? That if we have the surety of this salvation, if we have the surety of the and the witness of the Holy Spirit, if we have this assurance that God's word does not change, that he has declared us to be righteous, that we are in fact redeemed, what does that mean for you and me today? I'll tell you that it means in many respects that the faith that we operate in is disassociated, for lack of a better word, it's disassociated from our, from our trust in our own ability. And I say all that to, to, to lay a foundation of understanding that when, when somebody, when God says to, listen, this is what I'm calling you to, that, that, that you want to serve me, here you are, you're redeemed, you're a born-again person, you are part you are one of my children. You're in the family. And I have a purpose for you according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I've, I've created you in Christ Jesus unto good works, things that I've got for you to do. I established those before the world began because I knew you were going to be here. It's time to get going. And what it means is that as a result of that, as a result of that truth that we are redeemed, that that is an unchanging thing, that no matter what we do, no matter how we may succeed or how we may fail, that ultimately our motivation has changed. And we need to understand this, because I think that in many respects it prevents us from falling into this bondage of legalism. That if God, in fact, created man, as we read in Revelation chapter 4, for his purpose, for his glory, to bring him pleasure, that as we serve him, as we work to accomplish the purposes and the plans that he has created for us, and we do that 
not in an effort to maintain righteousness, not in an effort to be pleasing or acceptable to God, but in an effort to serve him. We're no longer under the curse of the law. The righteousnesses that we accomplished in the past before Jesus Christ were those filthy rags because they were wrought in selfish motivation. They were self-preservative. But for you and I who are in Christ, the motivation is completely different. We are righteous. We are acceptable in Christ. We are new creatures. The old things are passed away. These are truths that God has declared, and they, they are true. And so when we fail, it's not lost. When we do well, we bring him honor and glory. The motivation has been replaced. The curse of the law has been removed. Our righteousness is not linked to that any longer. When we encounter those who are stuck in religion, and we do on a regular basis, one religion or another, it takes a, a, an immense amount of faith to deny the witness of everything that God has created and everything that he has put within us. We have to understand that every person exercises faith in something, even if they choose to say that there is, quote-unquote, nothing that they should exercise faith in. And as a result of that, when we encounter those people, when we interact with them, we understand that this is a faith issue. And they are ultimately trusting in themselves. They are, they are there trusting in what God has not created to bring about redemption. And those who would choose to not believe in God simply do so because ultimately they don't want there to be any moral culpability. If I can remove the need to be righteous because there is no God, then I can live however I want. I'm not responsible. I don't have to be responsible. And what it means for you and I is that as God's servants, as his ambassadors, as those that engage the world around us, that we use the things that he has given us, the tools that he has crafted and created, that, that he used to reach us with those that we come in contact with. So as we have opportunity, I want you to, I want you to today walk away with the understanding and the confirmation and hopefully the encouragement but listen, we are redeemed, and this is where we stand, and that is unchanging. That is an eternal declaration. We are redeemed without any question, without any fear of loss, without any fear of rejection, because we've somehow blown it. And let that be some mechanism of preservation that would hold you back when somebody begins to say, listen, this is what we must do. This is how we have to act. This is exactly the method in which we would preserve that righteousness. And they're not going to say it that way. It's not going to be that blatant, but it's going to be, this is what God would have us do. This is how God would have us dress, or this is the standard by which we maintain God's standard. Any standard that is in addition to God's standard. And I realize that in some respects, that's a, that's a very nuanced statement. But if our righteousness, if your righteousness and my righteousness is not tied to our obedience, if we are no longer under the curse of the law, then we are no longer under the curse of the law. And God isn't saying to you, listen, you are my child because you're doing that thing over there. No, you're my child because I declared you to be so. Because you exercised faith in Jesus Christ, and I declared you to be righteous. I brought you into the family. I adopted you, and I gave you the promise of the Holy Spirit to help you understand that that never changes. Galatians, don't be foolish. We have the same hope. We have the same assurance. We have the same preservative as it was from the bondages of legalism. Now, we're going to talk about as we progress through the book of Galatians, because Paul talks about it. It isn't that we live however we choose to. In fact, we look at the outflowing, the fruits of the Spirit, those things that come out. 
There is something that should change in us, and the outward manifestation of what is inside should be evident to those around us. I'm not saying that God didn't establish a standard, and I'm not saying that we ought not to try to honor him. But don't be duped. Don't fall under the control of those who would say, listen, this is how it must be. This is your righteousness. Let's close in prayer this morning. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. I thank you, Father, that uh, you have given us your word. And as we look at it, just even more briefly than normal this morning, Lord, I praise you that you are clear in your utterances. Lord, that we are confirmed that there is an assurance and that there is this great hope and looking forward to. Lord, and I praise you that we are no longer under the curse of the law. That you have declared us to be righteous, that there is no longer any need or obligation that we would keep and merit favor with you. And Lord, may that be, may that understanding be a preservative in our lives to keep us from the bondage of legalism, the yoke of bondage going back under the curse of the law in whatever shape or form that may take. Lord, and may we not be those who would, uh, whether we do it consciously or whether we do it unconsciously, may, may, Lord, you help us to not be those who would push any other bondage. Lord, but that we may share the gospel clearly and concisely in a well-understood way, way, not bondage to bondage, but bondage to freedom. We praise you and thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that, Lord, through faith in him and in that alone, this is all possible. You have declared this good news and made these promises thousands of years ago and have recorded and preserved them in your word that we might understand your heart and desire for our redemption. We praise you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.